I have a few announcements myself before we look at the Word of God together. I am going to start another course. It's called Simply Christianity. We've done it before. It's a five-week course that takes you through the Gospel of Luke, and it's designed to present to someone who comes the Gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? What did He do? What did He accomplish? And what does it really mean for us today? So, we already have a home where we can, we can have that. Right, Robert? Lucy? Yes, where we can have that time. And I will let you know in the coming weeks when we're going to be starting that. But what I want to know is if you know someone who is either not a Christian or a nominal Christian, meaning that they don't attend church, they're not really sure what Christianity is all about, this would be a perfect class for them. And we will meet in their home once a week for five weeks in the next, starting probably in a couple of weeks from now. So what I'd like you to do is if you have any interest in that and you know someone who might want to attend, and my recommendation would be to bring them with you to the meeting. Even if you know everything about Jesus Christ and the gospel, this would be a good chance just for you to be with them and maybe review it with them together. But if you have any interest, if you could just indicate that to us on, under other on your connection card, just write SC for Simply Christianity, SC, and then put your name on the card. And that will let me know that you have somebody in mind or you'd like someone to attend that. We won't have it unless we have enough people to actually have the class. Okay, if you have any more questions about that, see me after the service. Also, we want to begin sending out a monthly email letter just to kind of keep everyone updated here about what's going on. Some of you are already signed up on our email register. But if you're not, or if you're not sure, either way, go to our website, which is on our bulletin, I believe, on the back. Is it? I don't have one up here, so. Okay, it's on the back, summabiblechurch.org. Go to our website. There's a tab called Contact, the top right. Click that tab, and at the bottom of that page, there is a link where it says Join Our Mailing List. That's an email mailing list. Click on that. It'll prompt you to put in your email address. If we already have it, it'll tell you. If not, it'll enter it, and then you're set. And then going forward, you'll begin to get those emails. So remember that today when you get home. And if you don't use a computer, that's okay. We'll get you that information somehow, Senior. (laughs) okay excellent we're going to be in mark chapter 7 that's where we are if you don't know we're moving through the, the book of mark verse by verse section by section and today we have arrived at mark chapter 7 we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23 if you don't have a bible just take one of those blue bibles and if you turn to page 842 842 that'll bring you to mark chapter 7 Verses 1 through 23. We're going to read this section in a moment, but one of the statements in this section of text is, In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. In Mark chapter 7. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in describing the worship of the religious leaders of his day. One translation puts that phrase this way, their worship doesn't mean anything to me. The very people who were considered by many to be authentic worshipers of the one true God were called hypocrites by Jesus and he said that their worship was worthless. Worthless. How is that possible? How is that possible? Well, that's a question that I will attempt 
to answer, hope to answer over the next couple of weeks. This is actually a two-part sermon. So we're going to have two different messages from this particular text, verses 1 through 23. We'll only get to the first point today on your outline. But another question to ask is, what would Jesus say if he were addressing the numerous religious institutions today that claim to worship God? Beyond that, what would he say to you and me, who at least on the surface appear to worship God? I want to turn you to a text just to show you something. It's not the text we'll be reading, so just put your, some place marker in Mark chapter 7. And you're going to turn to the right, 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 996, if you're using one of those blue Bibles. How you doing, Ray? Good. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Just read this with me, or follow me as I read along. But understand this, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, that in the last days, I bet you many of you have heard this this section of Scripture. In the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the shocking part of this passage, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. People read verses 1 through 4. I've seen this before. They will read verses 1 through 4 and stop there. They will not read verse 5, and they will begin to apply this text to non-religious people in our society. You know, quote, the bad people. But, this is actually a description of religious people. Religious people, just all that text we just read one through four, all those condemning words are describing religious people. People who appear on the outside to be worshipers of God, but the hard truth is they really worship themselves. They have an appearance of godliness, but that's all it is. An outward show that fools others, but cannot fool God. They are religious, but their sin goes unchallenged and their heart unchanged. They may even appear, quote, holy or righteous to those around them because of their faithful obedience to their religious man-made traditions, which we're going to talk more about in a moment. When their true colors are finally exposed, the unbelieving world mocks God and mocks Christianity, believing that both are powerless to really change people. But what they fail to see is that neither God nor Christianity ever had anything to do with these people. 
Look back at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Follow me as I read that text. Verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So if you are new with us or just by way of reminder, on the inside of your bulletin we have an outline. We'll be looking at the first point of that outline this morning and then next week we'll be looking at the second point of that outline. So we're going to consider just one sinister symptom today. We'll be eventually looking at the second one next week of man-made religion so that we might abandon any traces of it in our life. Sinister, in case you don't know, means wicked, evil, something you want to avoid. So these are symptoms or things that we want to avoid that are a result of or come out of man-made types of religion. So let me give you a little context here just to remind you. Jesus, who was very popular with the general population, mostly, as we've talked about, for his supernatural ability to heal their sickness and disease. We saw this last week 
in Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56. This is the section right before Mark chapter 7. He was not accepted, however, by most of the religious leaders of Israel. So the crowds liked him for what he could do, but the religious leaders, for the most part, hated him. Their animosity towards Jesus is again recorded in the text that we just read here in Mark chapter 7. Jesus, however, did not bow or cower to them, but continued to confront them by declaring the truth, truth that they sadly and simply refused to believe. These encounters only heightened the hatred of these religious men and eventually gave birth to Jesus' unjust trial and his gruesome murder. During this popular encounter, Israel's religious authorities, Pharisees, as we are told in this story, who when we read about them last, and maybe you don't remember, but in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, these religious leaders were plotting to destroy Jesus. Do you remember that? And we also have some scribes here. The last time we were told about scribes was in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And if you don't remember, they accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan. These two groups are the ones who have now sought Jesus out at this particular setting to spy on him and his faithful followers, his disciples. So here's the story. While observing Jesus and his men, they caught them eating without first having, quote, properly washing their hands or having washed their hands. This observation results in them going to Jesus and questioning him about why he was allowing his disciples or followers, in other words, he had some responsibility to correct this errant behavior, why he was doing that, and why he was allowing them to ignore their important religious tradition of ceremonially washing their hands before eating. Now, you read that and you might be thinking, is this just a hygiene issue? I mean, when I grew up, my mom told me, maybe she didn't, to always wash your hands before you eat, right? That's typically, that's just a, a good idea. But that is not the issue here. That is not the concern. It is not one of hygiene. In fact, Mark stops in the text to explain their concern, the Pharisees and the scribes, to his Roman Gentile readers. And we've talked about why it's important to know who the author is actually writing to because they would not have been familiar with this Jewish practice, this ceremonial washing. So look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 7, verse 3. Mark stops because his readers would have been maybe wondering the same thing. What are you talking about, this washing? And he says... For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. In other words, things used in the, in the, when you're eating or dining. So the washing here was not to remove possible germs and bacteria although that would be important, but that's not the issue here. But to ceremonially remove anything that the religious Jew may have come into contact with that they considered unclean 
or unholy, such as an ungodly or unholy Gentile. That would be one example. The Gentiles were considered unclean, unholy. So I'll give you an example. If they went to the marketplace and there was a transaction between a Jew and a Gentile, even though they may not have touched the Gentile, the fact that money was exchanged and the Gentile had the money in his hands and now they've put it into their hands, they have to some degree been defiled. And they needed to get that defilement off of their hands. That would be one example. Because as far as they were concerned, the Gentiles were unholy and defiled and ungodly. So the carefully defined procedures for washing hands and cups and pots, etc. were a religious ritual, just restating, believed to prevent potential contamination of what the person consumed, averting or avoiding internal defilement. Okay, so just, I know this is weird because we're not... Jews, most likely, and we don't live in a Jewish culture, so we have a hard time embracing this or understanding it. But this was their tradition. This is not a perfect illustration, but I used to be in the bug business, meaning I killed bugs for a living. And so we would get, without even knowing it, we would get insecticide or pesticides onto our hands. And it was very important. It wasn't a bacteria, it wasn't a germ, but it was very important to get that off your hands before you did anything, including uh, eating, including even smoking a cigarette. Uh, we would always tell people who smoked in the business, make sure you wash your hands, because what would happen is, is the insecticide would get onto the paper, and then they would absorb that, smoke it right into their lungs. And now, the contamination that was on the outside, which is not too bad, as long as you eventually wash it off, would get inside. And inside it would do incredible damage. In some way, that's what's going on here. They've been defiled, possibly, on the exterior. And so, ceremonially, they remove this defilement to avoid it consuming or getting onto their foods and then consuming those foods. It gets inside and creates this internal defilement where it does serious damage. This was taken seriously by the religious Jews because... It was assumed that becoming defiled or impure in this way was a barrier to worshiping God or having fellowship with Him. That's how serious this was. We're going to consider this whole issue more next week as we look at that latter part of the text. But for now, let me say a few things before we move on. There are washing rituals written down in God's Word, for instance, in Leviticus and Exodus, that were directions given by God to prepare the priest. They were given for the priest to serve in the tabernacle, which was a, a portable sanctuary where it, what we would call the meeting place of God and His people. is where the people worship God, where God met with the people for the nation of Israel. However, these additional requirements, these additional washing requirements of the hands and the pots and the all of the stuff that the religious leaders were referring to did not come directly from the written law of God or God's Word. They did not. But were oral traditions, in other words, passed down verbally, added to the law, and given from one generation to the next by the teachers of God's law. 
They were adding these traditions to the law. And over time, in the Jews' mindset, in their thinking, these traditions had become equal to the law of God in their authority, even though they were created or authored by men. Okay? So you need to know that it's important. One writer says this, their tradition was built up as a fence around the law. A fence. The original intention was to keep the actual law from being broken by adding minute stipulations around it which they had to observe. That was the idea. So how do we keep from breaking God's law in any way? We'll add all these other regulations. Even though God's Word doesn't say to do this, we'll add all these other regulations just in case. Just in case. It is important for us to remember that having good intentions does not make someone right, or more importantly, does not make someone right with God or His Word, as is the case here. The reality is they got it wrong. They got it wrong because fences can't fix the real problem people have. External restraints or rules cannot make a person right with God. If they did, Jesus didn't have to come. The heart is what God is really after. But we're going to talk about that more next week. So do not, do not miss next week and bring somebody with you. As far as the Pharisees and scribes were concerned, not ceremonially washing one's hands was sin. (laughs) Okay? It was sin and it left the person with defiled hands that would defile their food, ultimately defiling them as a person, making them impure or unclean before God. So in their minds, Jesus was either ignorant or didn't care. And neither was tolerable. Their question was an attempt here to publicly shame him as an incompetent teacher or worse, a rebel who did not conform to the religious leaders' established rules and expectations of what it meant to be a religious Jew. Now, Jesus' response to them was probably not what they were expecting. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 7, verse 6. They ask the question, he gives them an answer. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus quoted from the Scriptures God's Word, the very Word that these men claim to be experts in and believe that somehow Jesus was violating by not correcting His disciples' behavior. He applied the ancient words of the prophet Isaiah to the religious leaders that were challenging Him. And by doing so, He was calling the respected Pharisees and scribes hypocrites, phonies, Pretenders, 
and said that their worship was worthless, in vain. Meaning that the external appearance of godliness that they had was nothing more than that. An appearance, a front, a facade. Wow. That seems harsh, doesn't it? Seems harsh. Why would Jesus come out so strong against these men? It always amuses me when people talk about happy-go-lucky, nice, smiling, laughing Jesus. Like, He just walked on earth, floated a few feet above the air, and He was just always saying nice, cuddly, warm, loving, soft words, hugging and kissing people as He went. That is actually not an accurate description of the Jesus of the Bible. He, he was loving and warming, but he had some very harsh words for some particular people. If you understand how dangerous it is for men to stray away from God's Word by either adding to it or taking away from it, by promoting and defending what they think, contrary even to what God has said, in a real sense, creating their own man-made religion, then you know why Jesus was so direct with these religious leaders. Jesus continues the attack on His opponents by first addressing the first part of their question. Why His disciples were not, quote, walking according to the tradition of the elders. But he does it by exposing their hypocrisy and pretending that they really love and worship God. When in reality, they love their man-made traditions. You want to know why? Because they can do them without ever having to deal with their sinful hearts and still appear to be Worshippers of God. Matthew 23, 5, just listen, says, in reference to these Pharisees and scribes, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. To be seen by others. The audience they care about most is not God, but men. (laughs) They loved the praise of men. They wanted to hear men say, wow, you guys are really holy. I mean, look how good you are at keeping all those religious traditions. Mark 12.40 says this, For a pretense, they make long prayers. That means, for appearance sake only, they pray a really long time. Do you understand what's going on? Wow! He must be very holy. He can pray for longer than 30 seconds. He prayed for five minutes. Wow. But Jesus says they do it for appearance sake only. There's nothing wrong with praying for five minutes. But that alone doesn't make you right with God. Do you know the same things could be said about many religious people today? The same things that Jesus was saying about the Pharisees and the scribes? Mark chapter 7, verse 8. Look back at the text. 
Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He's addressing them still. He's dealing with their question. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Another translation puts it this way. You have let go of God's commands and you are holding on to the teachings that men have made up. (laughs) Okay, listen, this is the picture. Imagine walking and having your hands full. Okay, like when you're bringing in the groceries or something like that. And someone comes along and says, hey, carry this. And you say, hello, I can't, my hands are full. And they say, well, put some things down. And then you'll be able to hold on to this. And that's exactly what these men were doing. They are actually putting down or putting away God's Word for what? To pick up and hold on to some man-made religious traditions. The statement that Jesus makes here is, is a criticism of their actions, not a commendation. He's not saying, saying, well done. Both of these actions describe what I am calling the, the, or yeah, both of these actions describe what I am calling the first sinister symptom. Wow. Sometimes I should think twice before making up these phrases. You know what I'm saying? I should probably walk through myself a few times. The first sinister symptom of man-made religion. Okay? We're just going to look at the first one. The first one, is it invalidates God's righteous word. Invalidates God's righteous word. If you invalidate something, you know what you do? You deprive it of its legal force or value. You nullify it or you make it worthless. You make it worthless. We see this invalidation in the first sub-point under that point, rejection of God's commands. Rejection of God's commands. Look at Mark chapter 7, verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Another translation puts it this way. You are experts at setting aside. This is tragic, guys. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God. Jesus is saying, you know what you guys are really good at? Setting aside God's word neutralizing it, rejecting its divine authority over your lives. You know, some people want to be noticed for their great athletic ability. Right, Tony? Tony's a very good basketball player, in case you guys don't know. But he doesn't care to be recognized for that. But some people do, right, Tony? Are you, are you awake, Tony? Okay. <laughs> Others for their superior intelligence. I'm not going to pick anybody. (laughs) But these guys were being publicly recognized by Jesus for their expertise in rejecting God's commands. Can you imagine the look on their faces and the anger in their hearts as Jesus said these words to them? Jesus illustrated his point by exposing their clever dismissal of God's command to honor your father and mother. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 7, verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, 
And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Moses did not invent this commandment on his own, but he was simply the agent through whom God gave it. Jesus pointed out that God authoritatively commanded His people to honor their parents. And then He quotes from the Word of God. Exodus 20, verse 12, and Exodus 21, verse 17. This was no small matter to God because disobedience to this command was punishable by a timeout. Death. Death. But the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, had made it possible to invalidate God's word, reject this command, set it aside, and still appear religious or holy. (laughs) Reject God's word and still appear godly. Wow, what a deal. But what hypocrisy. And how absolutely worthless to God. Look back at the text, Mark 7, verse 9. That was the first point. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your what? Tradition. Verse 9 informs us that they rejected God's commands so that they could follow their own man-made traditions. And that brings us to the second point under number one, elevation of human traditions. Listen, they nullified what God said, setting it aside, rejecting its authority over them. Why? (laughs) So that they could promote advance and command obedience to their man-made religious rules. In other words, they were not just guilty of an outright rejection of God's commands, but their real agenda was to elevate their man-made traditions and rules to the place that only God's Word should occupy in someone's life. In following their tradition, or if following their tradition meant leaving behind God's commands, so be it. Can you see why Jesus was so harsh with them? They were practicing spiritual suicide and commanding others to do the same. So how exactly did they do that? Look back at the text. Mark chapter 7, verse 11. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, and you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Corban is a Hebrew term that Mark translates, again, for his Gentile Roman readers, because they would not necessarily know what he was talking about, You see it in the text. He says, given to God. Given to God. It was an unbreakable vow 
or a promise that someone would make by formally pronouncing that their money or property, their possessions, was now dedicated to God and could only be used for a religious or sacred purpose. In effect, banning it from any other use, such as helping mom and dad. They use this man-made tradition to nullify or cancel out their God-given responsibility for a son to support his parents and thereby honor them as the Lord had commanded. Notice that once this vow was made, the religious leaders jump right in. Look back at the text, verse 12. Then you, you scribes and Pharisees, no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. One commentator states it like this. If a son declared that the resources needed to support his aging parents were Corbin, then according to scribal tradition, he was exempt from God's command to honor them. And his parents were legally excluded from any claim on him. The scribes emphasized that this vow was unalterable and held priority over his family responsibilities. So what is the result of elevating the authority of man-made traditions and practices above God's clear and precise commands? Look back at the text with me. Chapter 7, verse 12. He says, Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And here it is, verse 13. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Just I want you to notice the emphasis on your tradition you have handed down. Many such things you do. In other words, Jesus is saying, this has nothing to do with God. It is entirely your doing. This invalidation of God's Word, by the way, was not an isolated event, a one-time occurrence. The Corbin vow was only an example among many where their cherished man-made religious traditions invalidated God's authoritative word. And yet, they still chose to hold on to their traditions. Jesus had publicly revealed their hypocrisy and why their external false worship through keeping their traditions was absolutely worthless to God. So here's the fun part. It is easy for us It's always hard to find timing to take a drink of water. You know what I mean, Vincent? It is easy for us to look back on this historical event that we just read about and see how absurd the actions of the Pharisees and scribes were. But it would be a mistake to think that we are not capable of similar things. 
we too are very susceptible to invalidating God's Word by setting aside what God has clearly said in His Word and instead following and submitting to the teachings or traditions of men. Religious institutions. Listen, someone's words only have divine authority when those words accurately, that's a key word, accurately reflect what God's Word has already said. And when it or those words don't, then they fall into the category of just words. Just words. To hold on to and believe just words is to devalue or nullify God's righteous word. Let me illustrate this. In the past, I have, I have heard some Christians say and defend this, that whenever the church doors are open, you should be there. Meaning that if there was a service on Sunday morning and another service on Sunday evening and a midweek Bible study on Wednesday and so on and so forth, you better be there. And it is further implied that if you're not there, then there is something wrong with you. Meaning, somehow, you are not as godly as those who attend everything. Now, God's Word does say we should not neglect to meet together. Hebrews 10, verse 25. But where does it say, or where, more importantly, does God say that meeting together means being at the church any time they have something going on? Beyond that, What if I actually started to believe that being at church or at church functions is a sure sign of godliness in my life? Do you know how many people do believe that? Maybe some of you believe that. The Pharisees would say to those who Don't attend every time the doors are open. You are not as godly as me because I attend church every day of the week. But you only attend on Sundays. Sometimes every other. I've heard people say that when you pray to God, all of these are man-made additions and traditions and rules and regulations. And They say when you pray to God, it should be with your eyes closed and or on your knees. Now, my wife has bad knees, so that's just not going to work. So she'd be out there, but she can't close her eyes. I just saw a poor lady who had plastic surgery, and she can no longer close her eyes. Did you see that? This poor lady is in big trouble. She'll never be able to do this. But they say you have to do that to show reverence or respect so they, to God, so they teach others... It is the only honorable way to pray. Eyes closed, knees on the floor. 
or had bowed. The Pharisees would say to those who didn't do such things, why do you pray with your eyes open and disrespect God? How about this? In some churches, their tradition or practice is that you dress up nice for Sunday. Why? Because they say God deserves your best. Which somehow means the ladies should wear dresses and the men suits and ties. I don't know where that is in the Word of God, but the Pharisees would say to some of you, (laughs) why do you dishonor God by wearing jeans to church? You're more holy because you wear a suit and tie? Some would say the only way to properly praise God is by singing hymns. Hymns, for some of you, may not be familiar if you haven't been in church a long time. They're just very good music and songs, good words that some of them were written decades ago, some of them centuries ago. We sing hymns, but we change some of the music to make it a little more contemporary. But some would say it's hymns and only hymns. And even goes as far to say it's hymns and with the original music, as if they were divinely inspired. Or they would say drums or a strong beat are inappropriate to include in the music for singing to God. Beloved, I don't know, maybe you've never heard this stuff, but this is reality in church circles. So where in the world, more importantly in the Bible, does God actually say such things? Or even imply it? Nowhere. Nowhere. The Pharisees would say, Why do you disrespect God by singing those contemporary Christian songs and using those devil drums? Ryan. (laughs) You know what is tragic about all these examples is similar to the Pharisees and scribes, people people might actually believe that faithfully complying with man-made traditions or teachings is how someone truly worships God. But they would be dead wrong. It is critical that you and I search our hearts and ask ourselves, is there anywhere, anywhere, that we have set aside God's Word in order to pick up and hold on to some man-made religious tradition or practice that is hindering us from truly worshiping the Lord according to His Word. Next week we will look at humanity's real problem and what really prevents people from properly worshiping our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we are a people that 
are very capable of self-deception. We convince ourselves that there's nothing wrong. We're good. Our spiritual life does not need to be examined. Yet your word commands exactly the opposite. That we should regularly search our hearts. God asks you to search our hearts and reveal to us where we have gone astray. In this area, Lord, it is a tricky one. So Father, I would pray that you would do the work that only you can do to help us see those areas where we have, we have done the, the abominable thing of setting aside your word, of setting aside what you have clearly instructed for what man has told us we ought to do. Or for man's teaching, which does not align itself with the Word of God. And Father, I know in our culture especially that many of us are guilty of not even really knowing what the Word of God says. So how would we even know whether what man says is what you're saying or if it's just them making it up? So to that end, Lord, I would pray that through Your Spirit, You would convict each and every one of us to go back to Your Word, to be devoted to Your Word, to be submerged in it, to drown in it, that we might know it and know it well. And then we can live according to it. And then we will see how it is people truly can be Your worshipers. And it is certainly not by keeping some religious tradition. But Father, we will never really believe that until we have been exposed to the truth of Your Word and it has taken root in our hearts and Your Spirit has applied it to us and we come under the conviction of it. So Father, I pray, do Your work among us. We ask this for Your sake, for Your glory that we might be Your people, that we might bring You praise and honor. In Jesus' name, Amen.